0: And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women. And this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And
4: my grandfather was born in 1883. I had a proper Victorian for a grandfather.
1: So, my grandfather was born in 1879, it turns out. What?! Yeah, he was 50 years old when he had my father, and my father was getting close to 50 when he had me.
4: That's bananas. It was really interesting being taught to grow tomatoes by a 97-year-old grandpa. Yeah! And my mother was always making jokes about, are you sure girls are allowed to grow tomatoes? (laughs) 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 Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to the Mini Questions Season 2. I've always loved Proust's Questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlor game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, What if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people ones that I am honoured and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience, or the most surprising, or created the most fertile ground to connect. My guest today is the neuroscientist and author, David Eagleman. I'm not sure I've ever had a really long conversation with a polymath before, But you sure don't forget it when it's over, because, you know, you keep waking up thinking about things they said, and it spans everything from quantum spirituality to philosophy to neuro-law and science to coffee in IHOP. David writes about the brain, how it constructs perception and how different brains do so differently, and how much that matters for society. He is among many other things, the executive director of the Center for Science and Law, which is a nonprofit that sets out to improve the legal system by importing our knowledge about the human brain, which then gives options for rehabilitation beyond mass incarceration. He's written tons of books and you will read and be astonished by all of them. He said something that I think about a lot. He said he was interested in exploring the vastness of our ignorance. And he said it with this kind of interest and excitement and without judgment of our human brains, which he also described, and I'm paraphrasing, as the three pound meat machine who lives in the dark and basically runs everything. I hope you enjoy listening to David's Brain. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you?
1: I think there are two ways to think about that. One is how we feel about the love for our children. So if you think about Cormac McCarthy's The Road, for example, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic world after nuclear war. And this father does everything in his power just to save his son, just to do everything he can to protect his son and keep him alive. And of course, there are are many stories like this, Life is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni. Am I giving the title right of that one?
4: Yeah, when he puts him in the, the bin at the end. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, he's in a concentration camp with his son and he does everything he can to protect his son. So that's a kind of love that now that I'm a father is very meaningful to me. As for romantic love, I think that would change each year of my life for me. Which is to say, when we're younger, we all take these great romance fantasies to represent love, and as you get older, more realism seeps in. So I've been married for twelve years now, and I appreciate now the way that real relationships are complex, and people change over different timescales as life changes and as career opportunities change. And I just recently re saw, uh, rewatched Fiddler on the Roof. You know, and he says he'd have me ask his wife, you know, "Do you love me?" And she says, "Do I what?" And so, and you know, they realize that the romantic notions can't capture it, but other notions, uh, you know, what they do for each other, how they demonstrate their bond to one another, this does capture something important.
4: Do you think that the romantic love, the faith-based love, service-based love, the love of our children, do you think that the root, that it's erroneous, that we have the same word for it? Because there are myriad ways to
1: love right yeah uh, raymond carver has a short story called what we talk about when we talk about love and i've always it's a great short story but i've always loved the title as well because it's about the complexity of it and like so many words in our language there's just too much semantic weight that that word is trying to hold because in fact it is composed of many different things yeah exactly it's composed of so many things and which of those things matters to us that changes through the years You know, my father, before he died, was in one of these care homes. So I met some of the other people on his hallway, much older men and women who were there. And I think they still cared about love, but it was something so different for them. It wasn't about the, you know, sort of young, sexy thing. It was about something else.
4: Yeah, definitely. It's really, I'm fascinated by the different permutations of it, of devotion and of The way in which people love differently when the love that they have with their version of God or with animals or with something that they do, how they love romantically changes directly depending on what their relationship with that sort of outsourced love, as it were, the love that we don't really talk about. I always think of love as romantic and I think lots of people
1: do, but... Yeah, that's right. And the other thing about love is, you know, obviously it goes in two directions. So we all want to get love. We want to receive love, love in various ways, including from our dogs and so on. But we want to be good to the people that we care about and love them well. But it's hard, right? Because we're made up of all these different neural networks that all have different drives and care about different things. And so sometimes you're feeling hangry, and sometimes you're feeling distracted by work, and sometimes you're feeling whatever. And so, yeah, we're constantly finding ourselves in situations where we don't behave the way that we would like to. One of the books that I'm writing right now has to do with something called the Ulysses Contract, which is how you can make a deal with yourself in time To constrain your behavior by doing something right now that essentially puts you in a contract so that you'll behave better in some future situation. This is what Ulysses did when he lashed himself to the mast. He knew that the siren song would tempt him just like any mortal man and he'd crash into the rocks. So what he did is the Ulysses of sound mind lashed himself to the mast so that the future Ulysses couldn't behave badly. And I find this a really interesting concept about the things that we do to make sure that we don't behave badly in the future. God, this is this is absolutely fascinating. Carry on, carry on. Well, you know, one example is if you're trying to get over some addiction, like, you know, alcoholism, what you do is you clear all the alcohol out of your house so that on a, you know, festive Saturday night or a lonely Sunday night or something, you're not going to go in. There. Even if you think, Oh, I'm sure I won't drink this anymore. You get rid of it. That's the Ulysses contract. Or, you know, for drug addicts, one of the first things they're taught when they're trying to break this is never walk around with more than $20 in your pocket because at some point someone's going to come up to you and offer to sell you drugs and you'll be tempted and then you'll give in. So there are many things that we do to make sure that we can, you know, make a choice now that will pay off to keep us acting consistently with our long-term decision-making?
4: I mean, I think I could definitely just put a big piece of tape over my mouth (laughs) and that would be my Ulysses contract sorted. Future me is never going to say the stuff that I am thinking that I know is going to cause trouble because I've got a massive piece of tape and maybe you could like TM your name. It could be like, David Eagleman, Ulysses tape. <laughs> I would buy that shit. Okay. <laughs> You're my first customer. Good. But that requires a modicum of self-knowledge that most people are not interested in interrogating because they don't want to think that there is something fundamentally wrong with them that's going to affect their situation now, much less in the future when the mermaids are singing and calling you into the ocean. We're so tender and we're so lost yeah. <laughs> as people. I mean, I love that you write these books that really do act as guideposts because that's what I think they are. And I'm constantly looking for signs and, and signposts because it is so fragile and tender. And like, you know that you're writing a book for that. But I, I, feel for, I feel for all of us, myself included, going, I just, I wonder how deep I can go into who I am to know how I could save myself
1: from myself. Yes, exactly. So when it comes to this issue about uh, self-interrogation and really trying to understand who we are, one of the hardest things to see is the way that we come off to other people. Because in fact, this is what one of my other books is that I'm writing right now. It's called Empire of the Invisible. And it's all about um, what's going on in politics right now. Specifically, it's asking why we each believe that we have the truth and we see the truth so clearly. And everyone else is misinformed or they're a troll or whatever it is. And if I could only shout in all caps loud enough on Twitter, I could convince everyone that I am right. It's crazy to me that every Everybody believes this at whatever part of the political spectrum. And by the way, in terms of relationships, we you know tend to all believe this as well. Which is okay. Well, I I already know how to do relationships. I'm I'm saying the right things all the time.
4: Do you think that that kind of the surety of that empiricism that is so pervasive is that human or is that learned? Like, is that hardwired into our brains? Is that something that was useful once when we were discovering fire? Yeah,
1: it couldn't actually be any other way, because the way we build a model of the world, remember your brain is locked in silence and darkness inside your skull. And all it's trying to do is put together an internal model of what is going on out there, which includes other people and how other people behave and how they'll react to what you say. And the thing is that this internal model is inherently limited. It's only built up from the little dribbles of data that you get in during your years. And so the way the brain works is it says, okay, look, I've got this data. I've collected all this data. I know what is true. And it's just built up from what we've taken in. Now, by the way, I will say we're probably better off than we were historically because now we have, for example, the printing press. And so and we have movies and things like that. And so you put all this together and we're exposed to literature and to stories that are much broader than our own experience. So that helps. But still, Still, I've only read a you know, finite number of books in my lifetime, I've only met a finite number of people, and that has shaped my experience, just like your experiences have shaped your brain. And so that's why, given that data, you say, okay, I know what is true. This is what is true.
4: It's very, very interesting. I'm really looking forward to reading that book. What person, place, or experience most altered your life?
1: Well, interestingly, it's almost certainly my parents, but the interesting part is that that feels invisible to us. In other words, it's very hard to to see all of the ways in which your parents shaped you because you knew nothing else. That was just the background furniture of the world, and you grew up against that. So that's certainly what has shaped me the most, my parents. But when I was in graduate school, my thesis advisor, a guy named Reed Montague, was unbelievably influential on me. He, you know, you come to an age when you're a young person, I was, I guess, maybe 20, 21 when I entered grad school. You know, you're just leaving your parents home and you're looking for other people in the world. And he was just a great person to really uh, admire in so many ways. He was 20 IQ points ahead of everybody. And he was a terrific athlete, unbelievably strong and fast and so on. And, And the The key thing is he gave me no charity. I mean, he spent the entirety of grad school beating me up every day. And that was really valuable because I I think actually maybe there's sometimes too much charity that happens because teachers are kind or they're just too tired or whatever. So if you get something 99% right and you don't get it 100% right, no one really says anything. They don't expect anything more from you. But Reed expected 100% all the time, every time. And that was probably the most valuable thing that's happened in my life. And then I guess the last thing I'd say is when I was a postdoc, one of the people I got to work with was Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. That in my entire life since then, I've not had another experience like that because he was such a special person in the sense that. Not only was he essentially the giant of 20th century biology, but he didn't have a life like other people. He never had to write grants and try to get a job as a professor and whatever. So he just had this office and he would read the scientific journals all day. And I asked him once, I said, what are you looking for when you're reading there? He said, I don't know. But what he meant was he's just letting ideas come to him and he's writing letters to scientists around the world and saying, hey, why don't you do this experiment? What if you did this and this and this? He was just a a person who, because he'd won a Nobel Prize as a young person, got to just be a giant thinker his whole life and never had to deal with the constraints that everyone else had to. Wow.
4: Wow. How amazing. How amazing that he was your teacher. Yeah, I do think hard things teach you. Yes. We have a really big swell here in California at the moment. I don't know if you're aware or if you're a surfer, but I am. And yesterday I went out very excited and I just took so many giant waves on my head and I was so bummed. And I kind of, I came in and I sat on the beach and my friend I was like oh, that was just the worst and my friend went well did you know what you did wrong like do you know what do you know what happened I was like well yeah you know that first 10 footer I was too far ahead of it and on the second one I was just dealing with being pissed off about the first one and the third one I was scared and he was like great well now you can go back out and not do all that shit that you just said
1: Oh, excellent.
4: And so I did. I went back out and I took another 10 waves on the head, but I did get one really amazing one.
0: Yeah.
5: We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts.
1: It's like the police knew who he was before they got here.
0: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And
1: I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry.
0: Or Kellen Kenney, chief marketing and growth officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar.
2: It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson.
0: In these exciting times, we're looking to the math the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
6: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe.
2: Mexico will likely have its first female president.
5: And then you have China.
4: In your life, can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster?
1: Uh, yeah, when I was in the third grade, I fell off of a roof of a house that was under construction, and I almost died. Um, I fell you know, from the roof and landed on the brick floor face first, and I shattered my nose. But I think that's part of what made me a neuroscientist, because as I was falling, I was First of all, having completely calm, clear thoughts, I was thinking about Alice in Wonderland and how this must have been what it was like when she was falling down the rabbit hole. And just before that, I was thinking about, okay, I wonder if I could still grab for the roof and, and I realized, oh, that's tar paper and it's not going to hold and that's not going to work. And... You know, eventually I just turned and faced the bricks and hit. But the thing is that the whole event seemed to take a very long time. I still remember the thoughts very clearly because it was, you know, a traumatic uh, event. But when I got to high school and I took physics, I realized that the whole fall had taken 0.6 of a second. And I couldn't figure that out. I couldn't understand how this thing that was so fast seemed to take so long. So that got me really interested in our perception of the world and specifically in the perception of time and why things seem to go in slow motion during a life-threatening event. And I ended up, uh, you know, growing up to become a neuroscientist, and I studied that. I did these experiments where I dropped people from a 150-foot-tall tower in free fall, and they're caught in a net below going 70 miles an hour, and I was able to measure aspects of their time perception on the way down. How did you do that? Uh, What I did is I built a device that went on their wrist and it flashed information at them, visual information at them at a certain rate. And depending on how fast they were seeing the world, the the question was, would they be able to essentially see in slow motion? Because everybody who's ever gotten in a car accident says, oh, you know, it was like slow motion. I saw the hood crumple and the rear view mirror fall off and the facial expression of the other person and so on. And so I wanted to really test whether that was true, whether you could see in slow motion. And it turned out that you do not see in slow motion. It's all a retrospective trick of memory, which is to say, when you're in a life-threatening situation, you're laying down memories really densely. Normally, you're not laying down much memory at all. You know, I don't remember my drive home. It was just, it was nothing. But when something really matters, your brain writes down every single thing. So when you read that back out, when you say, what just happened? What just happened? What just happened? You remember it in such detail that your brain estimates, oh, I guess that must have taken longer. That must have taken a long time. So it's all about the way memory is laid down. That's why we think the event took place in slow motion, whereas in fact, it's not slow motion. And I realized after I did these experiments that it has to be that way because, you know, coming back to the car accident, you someone says, look, I know it went slow motion because I saw all these things. You can just ask the person, okay, look, the the passenger on the car seat next to you who was screaming, did it sound like the person was actually saying, no, because if not, then that means it was not going in slow motion. And people have to allow that actually they didn't hear things in slow motion so on. It's simply that they remembered all the details. And so when their brain makes an estimate, it says, oh, I guess that must've been five seconds because I don't usually have that much memory.
4: Do you think that only a traumatic event can trigger that kind of memory sequence or could something that is intensely pleasurable and amazing do the same
1: thing? Yeah, good question. It can be the intensely pleasurable and amazing. It's just that's more rare, but it's an area of your brain called the limbic system and the amygdala in particular that's involved in saying, hey, write this down. This is important. And there aren't that many things that are super important for us to write down. Certainly traumatic events count and certainly super pleasurable events count. But otherwise, most of the time, your amygdala says, "Okay, you know, same old stuff. I'm not going to bother keeping dense memories of this."
4: That's so funny because childbirth. I don't know what your partner or wife experienced, but it's so interesting. There are great swathes of the thirty-seven hours that I was in labour that I remember so acutely and keenly, and they involve pain and they also involved laughter and hilarious things that my mother and my sister said. And then there must be hours. There were hours and hours and hours. That I know I was just stumbling through pain, but I don't remember exactly. So it's, it's interesting. There are parts of that 37 hours that are carved out in the boldest relief. It's so interesting. I've often wondered why my brain chose to remember those bits and not when I was sitting in the shower, you know, singing, which I know I did because they told me I did it, but I don't really remember it.
1: Yeah. Well, what happens during pregnancies, you've got all oh, these hormones that are going up and down and bouncing all over the place. And for better or worse, this just teaches us what biological machines we are, which is to say, oh, when this hormone's high, and then you're remembering and you can remember that later. Huh. And then when this other thing is happening, forget it. You're just not writing anything down.
4: God, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. It It can be amazing and depressing and eye-opening and so on. I think it's the most important thing for self-understanding, for understanding what is our experience in the world. I
4: think that grief has taught me that meaning is just assigned. We assign meaning and the depth of our experience and the meaningfulness of our life is in direct proportion to what meaning we assign to it.
1: Well, it's even worse than that, I think. Oh, great. (laughs) Which is to say a lot of the stuff is evolutionarily dictated. And so you know, when you're a young person and you, we think, oh my God, I'm so in love and so on. That meaning, we didn't really have a choice in that. That is what has allowed our species to survive. So many things are like that. Why is it that, you know, if, if there's a lemon pie in the oven that smells so good, but let's say a piece of poop on the sidewalk smells so aversive, so bad, given that they're just molecules, both in both cases, just molecules that are wafting through the air and attached to receptors in your nose. You know, if you study olfaction, how that actually works. It's just molecules of different shapes. So if I showed you the two different shapes, I said, okay, one of these is lemon pie and one of them is poop, you wouldn't know which is which. You couldn't possibly. And so the question is, why is one so pleasurable one so aversive? And the answer has to do with the evolutionary meaning. So the lemon pie tells you, hey, there's food, there's high sugars in there. Great. I can keep this battery powered, you know, robot, meat robot going. (laughs) But the poop is full of bacteria and things that have been figured out through evolutionary time are dangerous to you, or pathologic. And so the shorthand that your brain does to say, oh, that's aversive. Don't go near that thing. And so I often wonder about this issue of all the things that we find meaningful in life. The question is, how, how far does the hand of evolution reach in there and define what we find meaningful and what we don't?
4: Exactly. And spending time unwrapping that, there probably isn't quite enough life to do that. Or maybe there is, but maybe it would just take all the fun out of it.
1: You know, I don't actually think so. You know, my analogy is, if you and I sat down, Minnie, for the next hour and I gave you a diagram and I showed you exactly why you like the taste of, let's say, a chocolate, why you think that tastes so delicious, You might say, okay, good. I've got it. I understand the entire diagram, but that doesn't change your pleasure about it at all. It doesn't improve it. It doesn't diminish it. It's like it's a different world. I mean, if I said this to you about, you know, the color purple, I said, oh, look here, you've got these color photoreceptors and this happens in the visual cortex, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't change the fact that you look at something purple and you say, oh, that's beautiful. No.
4: Has having your children... Made you think about neuroscience in a different way? Yeah, because like the yogis talk about beginner's mind, like that—that that is that is a place that you are always seeking to get back to, which is what I always—I've always perceived, like having watched my son grow up. That beginner's mind is the purest, most beautiful. They are so connected to whatever was pre-consciousness, and they've brought that in with them. So
1: yeah, well, one of the things that has sort of been an interesting surprise to me is just seeing the punctuated equilibrium, by which I mean, you yeah, know. things Things change suddenly, as in, you know, one day your daughter can't read, and then, you know, kind of a week later, she's a pretty good reader. It's just sort of these things that you work on with her for a long time suddenly change. And I've always found this kind of thing fascinating. It's like the system finds something where it says, okay, now I got it. Now I know how to read. Or ride a bicycle, or whatever the thing is. So that's been really interesting to me, and also to to really try to get an understanding of which things are pre-programmed and which things are just a matter of absorbing from the world. And uh, you know, it's always a combination of both. You may know this, but the nature versus nurture debate is totally dead because it's always both. You come to the table with a lot of pre-programming, and you absorb the world, and you absorb your language and your culture and your neighborhood and your religion and so on. That all becomes part of who you are. So you know. Just just really watching my kids and trying to understand that is a really...
4: Oh, I get so worried that there was no way I could have created a scientist because of that because my son is around music and music and music and acting and reading and poetry and plays and discussing literature and movies and this and sure enough he comes back from this amazing school that he goes to having said can I have bass lessons can I learn the bass in September and I was like yeah totally great and he comes home and he's already playing the bass like he can now play it and I was like what well, I thought we were going to do the bass lessons he was like yeah I couldn't I couldn't wait it was just in there I had to start doing it. And I was thinking like, you. part of me was going, this is so amazing. And part of me was going, you poor thing. Like you could have maybe built a bridge, like, but there was really never any chance that you were going to be able to build a bridge because of me. <laughs>
1: You know, I'll tell you the good news. That's that You're totally right in your intuition about this. But there's two things worth noting. One is that, you know, kids drop into the world having a lot of predispositions that might be different from yours. So you will influence your child massively. And yet your child will go off and do things that you didn't really expect. The second thing that's so wonderful about this world is the internet and the fact that you have access to anything, anytime. So he gets lots of music from you, but boy, he can just log on and watch watch, you know, Carl Sagan's Cosmos or watch Neil deGrasse Uh Tyson or watch anything he wants, watch some Brain Pop video or some TED-Ed and suddenly be turned on to bridge building in a way that even though he didn't get it from you, he got it from TED-Ed. So that's the great news about this.
4: I mean, I would obviously walk across a bridge that a bass player had built, but, you know, thousands wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me where and when you were happiest?
1: I had an experience the other night when I uh, decided with my two children, who are seven and 10 years old, that we were going to camp out on the trampoline outside. And it was uh, it was very cold and we were very uncomfortable, but it was so much fun. It was just all laughter. And so it was just such a nice moment with my kids. So as far as thinking of a moment, that's my most uh, recent one. But I think more generally, you know, I do all my writing at IHOP. And uh, these are different IHOPs all over the world, actually. But you know, I've written eight books, so I don't know—like a million words I've published so far, and every single one of those words has been done at you know an international house of pancakes.
4: How many when you were ordering moons over Miami?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I actually really just drink the coffee there. I don't need too much in the way of pancakes, but it's just the right speed. Starbucks is too um, you know, there are too many people walking in and out, and IHOP is slower. And so I just sit down for a six-hour window and I just write. And that is when I am my happiest, especially when I feel like I've nailed something. I've gotten something that was just a cacophonous thought in my head clear and on the page. And I've written, you know, whatever, 157 words that are crystal clear, exactly what I mean here. That's the best feeling that I know.
4: I know that you say you love to do that in IHOP. Can you do that anywhere? Or do you get attached to an experience happening in a place and then associate that good feeling with that place?
1: It can actually be anywhere. It just has to be a place that's moving at the right speed.
4: It's why it's called IHOP, because you can only hop very slowly. You cannot (laughs) rush. Like Starbucks (laughs) even sounds fast. It's like stars and (laughs) Bucks and <laughs> movement. I concur.
1: Not going to write a coffee dash, but I love that feeling of just going in deep.
4: What is the quality you like least about yourself?
1: Ah, well, my whole life has been true. I just take on too much. And I have so many friends that are good at being laser focused. And in fact, just this morning, I was talking to a colleague of mine who also writes books. And she said, yeah, what I do is I start with a table of contents and I write each piece and I know exactly what's going to go in the book and what the framework is. And that's not at all how I do it. I'm completely on the other end of whatever the spectrum is that she's on. You know, I just, I have ideas and I dictate into Evernote all day long. And I, oh, this is going to be a paragraph here and an idea here. and And then I tie stuff together with time. And I probably spend twice as much time putting something together that way and deleting whole, you know, scenes and paragraphs and chapters but that's just the way that, that I write. But the problem is I'm always, I mean, this has always been true. I write, you know, five books at once. And, you know, I teach at Stanford. I'm running two companies and I'm about to start my own podcast. That podcast is going to be 40-minute monologues where I'm just talking for 40 minutes. And so what that means is I'm just going to have a ton of work on my plate.
4: I've got a great idea. I've got a great idea.
1: Oh. You record
4: your podcast and then that becomes your book. So you just record it and then you put it through some program so that it just dictates it. And then you just edit what you've said already. This is how you're going to save time. I would like to see this book.
1: Yes, I I love that idea. You know, the difficulty is with a book, it's like building a cathedral. You know, there's all this stuff. It's such a bigger kind of project. And I wish I could turn 40-minute monologues into a book, but it's... uh...
4: But perhaps if you do 100 40-minute monologues, you will have... (laughs) the beginnings of a book.
1: I'll have a lot of material, that's for sure.
4: I've written one book, David, which is not really comparable to anything that you've said. However, it was speaking the thoughts that then made it much nearer. It made the reality of that book much closer so I could actually reach out and get it. It was having verbalized it. So I wonder if it would maybe speed up the process by you hear yourself talking about these ideas and it becomes more coherent and certainly externalized and then becomes something that you can actually, you can grab easier and write out. I don't know.
1: No, I totally get that. You reify the ideas by saying them out loud. And then one trick that I do all the time lately is I will then take stuff that I've written and put it into a program so that it speaks the text back to me, but with a totally different voice. Let's say a female (sighs) voice or a British voice, maybe your voice. So I'm listening like an audio book to my own writing and I think, oh, that part sucked and oh, that logic doesn't quite match up. That's amazing.
4: I would love that. I would use that for difficult conversations with my son. <laughs> let me just let me just rehearse this. <laughs> let me just rehearse this. And hear that back. That's really cool. Yeah,
1: as though you're hearing a different parent saying it, and then you think, "Oh, that's not so good."
4: But actually, as I'm a single mother,
1: that really would. <laughs> I could do it in like a man's voice. Right, perfect. And by the way, many authors in the past have used this method. Wordsworth, for example, had a lazy Susan on the table, you know, one of these circular jobs that spins around and he'd have his different manuscripts on it and he'd work on whatever manuscript until he was slowing down. And then he'd spin it and pick a different manuscript and work on that. And that's exactly how I work. Whenever I'm slowing down on something, I switch projects. And as a result, I'm always working at top speed on that project. So I think there actually is some benefit to it.
4: That's amazing. So it sounds like that's not necessarily like a bad quality because you've done it always and you're used to it in terms of taking on a lot of things.
1: I mean, for example, I'm in Silicon Valley and I, you know, the VCs who invest do do not like this quality about me. I think they would much rather see me as the type of person who just does it, wakes up, thinks about this company 24 7. And I do think about it essentially 24 7, but I'm also doing other things at the same time. You know, it has worked out, but it always feels like one of those things where I'm leaning forward as far forward as I can into the future and moving as fast as I can on all fronts. And as long as it works, that's great. You know, at some point, I'm going to, whatever it is, I'm going to break a leg or, you know, get diagnosed with something or whatever. And then everything's going to, you know, pile up like, a giant car accident.
4: What would your life look like if you did slow down?
1: You know, I just don't think it's my personality. I've actually tried. In fact, when I was in college, I had this professor who I really thought was wonderful. And he said, look, Eagleman, life is like you are a lumberjack and you can't go into the forest and take one thwack at each tree. You have to pick your tree and really hit that tree with it. And it sounded so wise. And I really liked this guy. (laughs) And so I tried to change myself, but that's just not who I am.
0: Listen to a brand-new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs>
1: you couldn't believe it.
5: From iHeart Podcasts. It's
1: like the police knew who he was before they got here.
5: A story about money, power, and
3: corruption. The medical school dean at USC
5: This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption.
2: We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish.
5: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: David, what would be
4: your last
1: meal? I think I would do a protein shake. And it's only because that represents my my enthusiasm about the next steps, about what's coming next, and how I want to you know, make sure my body is fit and so on for the future. So I might as well go out on a high note with my eyes still on the horizon. I think that's how I'd like to go out. You're still
4: feeding your muscles and feeding it protein. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> What flavor protein shake would it be?
1: I think chocolate. Why not?
4: I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. By the way, who wouldn't? what question would you most like answered?
1: Years ago, in 2004, I wrote a cover article for Discover Magazine called 10 Unsolved Questions of Neuroscience. And what's interesting is that those are essentially as unsolved now as they were then, with one possible exception, actually. But the top question for me is the question of consciousness, which is, why does it feel like something to be you or me? Because the brain is built of 86 billion neurons, which are the specialized cells in the, of the brain. And each of these neurons is you know, sending information back and forth with these electrical spikes and they're releasing chemicals, all kinds of complicated stuff. But fundamentally, it's just a big biological machine. It's just doing stuff. It's just you know, sending signals and reacting to signals. And as far as we can tell, that's all that's going on because when somebody damages their brain, we can make very particular predictions about what the consequences are going to be. It'll change their risk aversion or their decision-making or their ability to... To name animals or see colors or understand music, you know, super specific things. And so that's why when we look at hundreds of years of brain damage, we say, all right, look, it appears to just be a big machine there. But the question is, why does it feel like something to be alive? Why do you experience the beauty of a sunset or the smell of cinnamon or the taste of feta cheese on your tongue? Why aren't we just like? You know my computer, my laptop here, is sending lots of signals around back and forth, but presumably it's not conscious. And when I watch a YouTube video that I think is funny, it presumably doesn't think it's funny. It's just sending zero you know, it's just sending zeros and ones around. And when I shut it off at night, it doesn't lament its own death or something. So this is the question is how do you build a biological machine and have it be self aware?
4: Is that the fundament of Possibilianism.
1: Yeah, exactly. So for anyone who doesn't know, you know, (laughs) Possibilianism is this movement I started about 12 years ago, which is simply a way of me trying to capture what the scientific temperament is, where we shine a flashlight around the possibility space. and We say, look, maybe it's that, maybe it's that, maybe it's that. And the the reason I sort of tried to articulate this is because when you go into a bookstore, all you ever see are the books by the the atheists, the neo-atheists, and the books by the fundamentally religious. And they're often put on the same table in the bookstore so that you can sort of (laughs) choose your side and see what's up. But the truth is that our existence in the cosmos is so deeply mysterious that almost certainly there's something much more interesting going on that is neither of those positions.
4: I think you said it as well, the vastness of our ignorance. It is full of potential as opposed to full of admonishment. Yeah. I, when I read that, you know, being interested in celebrating the vastness of our ignorance, it was actually really dynamic
1: as opposed to you, dumb dumb." It was like you, dumb dumb." <laughs> right. The part that always surprised me is that people want to pick one answer and then fight for that and say, OK, this is the right answer. Yeah. How many people are in your movement? Can I be in it? Yeah, please. I'd love to have you. You know, the interesting part, I, you know, I wrote my book, Some, which is a book of literary fiction, and it's 40 stories of what happens after we die. And it's all made up. And it's all meant to be, you know, funny and interesting. And none of it's meant to be taken seriously. But the part that is meant to be taken seriously is the idea of, wow, we really have no idea what this is, what our existence is all about here. And that's what the meta lesson uh, that emerges from the book is. And so anyway, after I said this on NPR one day about possibility-ism, um it sort of became a thing and people started websites and Facebook groups and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I haven't really checked on it in a while, but I'm glad to see it's moving.
4: I like it. I think it's great. Now I've got to read some as well. I have conversations based on something that my mother post-death, a phrase that she has coined, which is called brain share, because as she's said to me in our conversations, because she doesn't have a brain anymore, which is a huge relief, but she has to use mine so that I can feel her thoughts. Now, and it's so funny because a friend of mine was like, well, isn't that just your brain? Isn't that just a function of your grief? Because she died only a year ago. And I said, well, does it really matter? I don't really know. I'll never know. It doesn't matter if I know or if I don't know, but I hear her voice very specifically. And we have these conversations which are so, they're fascinating to pick over. They're not just comforting. They're strange because there's clearly an evolution, either of my idea of her since she died or of her since she died, that it's different enough that I recognize her, but it's another version of her.
1: Yeah, and you know, one of the most fascinating things is that the job of the brain is to construct these internal models of other people. So you have an enormous number of models in your head but you have thousands of these. You know, like, oh, your neighbor from down the street years ago, and oh, your college roommate and so on. You've got little models. Some are more sophisticated than the others. So your model of your mother is, you're devoting a lot of neural real estate to that, actually. You've got a very rich model of her. You have other models that are thinner of, you know, your barista at Starbucks or something who you don't know that well, and you may have to make lots of assumptions. But the thing that has always struck me as fascinating is, you know, in neuroscience, my field, you know, we've essentially spent all the time studying, okay, how does vision work? How does hearing work? How does decision-making? making work and so on. But the part that's gone underappreciated there is how social brains are. Brains are all about other brains. And so this is sort of an emerging field called social neuroscience. But the point is that a huge amount of the territory of your brain is there just to simulate your mother and your father and everybody you've ever known. Wow.
4: All right. I'm going to be thinking about that through tea time. David, I'm so honestly just so chuffed, as we say in England, to talk to you. I can't thank you enough for your time.
1: Well, thank you, Minnie. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you.
4: Thank you very, very much. Be sure to check out David's books, including Some, Incognito, and his most recent book, Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain, which was also nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Live Wired explores not only what the brain is, but also what the brain does. And when you sit down to read it, please feel free to imagine you're having a cup of coffee at IHOP, sitting next to David while he's busy writing five other books. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music, by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dale Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver.